the Water Values Podcast, Session 15. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to yet another session of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, Father's Day is this upcoming Sunday, and I hope you all take time to recognize your fathers and thank them for all they do, much like you did on Mother's Day for your mother and on Memorial Day for our veterans. Well, today's a great show. Marshall Davert, the president of Government and Infrastructure for the Americas and Asia Pacific for MWH Global, joins us. Marshall describes the infrastructure needed to bring water to your home or business and then carry away the used water and then treat it and he provides his assessment of the state of our infrastructure. He also takes us on a tour of the Americas and Asia Pacific and how countries in those regions address water infrastructure projects. This is a must-listen episode to get a handle on our infrastructure situation and learn about the models for funding infrastructure improvements around the world. Now, normally, uh, now is the time for the disclaimer, but we're trying something new today at the suggestion of a loyal listener. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for the disclaimer. That's right. I'm moving the disclaimer to the end of the podcast, so we'll see how that goes. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Marshall, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time. I know you're very busy and uh, you have some international travels coming up. So uh, could you real quickly tell us about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure, and thanks, David. Thank you for having me here. I think um, venues like this where you could put some thought leadership out there is very important to our business, so I appreciate you taking some of the leadership that you're showing here as well. Uh, my background, I uh, started out as an applied math guy, and um, but got into applied science and into engineering um, early in my career, and uh, it really was a, a step backward to um, where I was headed when I, when I was in sixth grade, my parents took me to Hoover Dam, and I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> and, and the fact that you could take falling water and turn it into electricity and then deliver that electricity somewhere else in the country, I thought that was magic. So I, I was hooked on engineering and science from a very early age. Uh, I started out as a structural engineer, which I quickly found to be just a little bit tedious and gravitated towards water resources and water resources planning and management you know, very quickly in my career. And especially because what I found about water resources is it, um, it ties you to growth and to economic policy and public policy. And I took great interest in how you could shape economies and shape growth um, through producing water. So I, um, I became a water resources planning and management, got my uh, master's and PhD in water resources from UCLA, uh, came to work for MWH uh, in, the, in the 90s. Uh, ran our California operation, became the director of strategy for the Americas, and then became the president of our Asia-Pacific operation in um, 2008, ran that group for four years. Uh, now I'm back here in the U.S., but I run both of our Americas operation and our Asia-Pacific operations in, um, in water. Okay, and you deal a lot with infrastructure. In, tell us a little bit about who MWH is and the type of projects they work on. So MWH is a global company. We have about 8,000 people in 35 countries. So uh, infrastructure is at the core of what we do. We specialize in water and environmental engineering. Um, 
our mission statement is building a better world, and our vision is about how do we work in infrastructure in both the natural and the built in environment to um, produce you know, better outcomes for, uh, for people around the planet. So water infrastructure is at the core of what we do, whether it's uh, constructing dams, hydropower facilities, uh, treatment plants, pump stations, pipelines, water treatment plants, anything in the water cycle, how you deliver water to our clients, that's what we specialize in globally. Okay. And there's a lot of talk about the state of infrastructure in the U.S. Let's focus on the U.S. initially. Could you uh, enlighten us a little on what that state of infrastructure is in the U.S. and, and specifically to the to the water assets? Sure. It's um, – I always tell people we're, uh, we're a victim of our success in this country. Uh, the public is – they don't realize what a miracle it is that when they flip the light switch, the power comes on every time. When they turn on the tap, the water comes out every time, and it's good to drink. They flush the toilet, and it goes away every time. And um, that, that really is a miracle. You go to most parts of the planet, and that's not the case. E even in the first world, you know, people are struggling. Um, but the, the greatest problem in the U.S. at the moment is if you think about when our infrastructure was constructed. When we, we came out of World War II, um, the U.S. had about 75% of the industrial capacity of the planet and all the economic power that went behind that. And there was, there was nothing we couldn't do. Engineering is easy. You know, tell an engineer, what do you want me to do? I can do it. Give me enough money, give me enough time, it'll be constructed. So we built, you know, a great deal of infrastructure in the U.S., in the 50s and 60s, from, from the dams uh, to the diversion plants to, to treatment, and, and the cities were growing. So a lot of our infrastructure is coming up on 50 or 60 years old. And it's not so much that um, you know, it was well-planned, and it wasn't deficient in, in, in any, uh, any manner, but there are two things that are happening to our infrastructure right now. One, we overbuilt in the 50s and 60s because we could, and so for the first time in several generations, we're beginning to bump up against the capacity of that, of that infrastructure. Before, we would always be able to just grow and just use some of the unused capacity and just grow and grow and grow and never have to deal with building new projects. We were just using unused capacity. So that's, um, we came a little bit fat and happy as a country there on what you needed to set aside as reserve accounts and the capitalization for future projects which then allowed us to stumble into our current problem, which is as that infrastructure starts to reach the end of its economic life, um, there's been several generations who really haven't had to look at what's, what's the next increment of infrastructure that needs to be constructed and why. And um, when, you, when, you, when you look at the infrastructure we have nationally, it's, um, it, it varies. There are places where the infrastructure is new. We've had greenfield growth. We have modern treatment plants, pipelines, pump stations. Um, there, it really is not too problematic. But there are areas where the infrastructure is 75 years old and things wear out, and it's time to replace it. And the, the single greatest barrier to us at the moment, it's the lack of capital. Um, the money has not been set aside to turn over the infrastructure. And so as you're balancing new growth versus rehab and rehabilitation, there's a tension there, and it, it certainly is not as attractive 
or exciting to go back and rebuild deficient infrastructure as it is to go build brand new stuff with a clean sheet of paper. Right. You've said a couple of things there that I think are very interesting. The first is access to capital as a barrier to infrastructure investment and replacement. And the second is just the state of the infrastructure itself and the varying degrees uh, to which that infrastructure exists in its current state. I think it'd be helpful to explain what the elements of our water infrastructure are. And as you're doing that, to also uh, give us the current state of, in general, obviously, of what that uh, infrastructure exists in. You know, is, is it in good shape or is it in bad shape? I like to, let's just follow the water cycle from when the water falls from the skies. Perfect. You know, onto the mountains or onto the ground to percolate. And we end up with essentially two types of water. We have surface water. It's in lakes and reservoirs, whether man-made or natural. And we have groundwater. And um, the first thing you need to look at is how do you extract that water and capture it and then make it available at the right time? You know, the beauty of groundwater, it's always there. You put it in a well and you pump it up, and that it's almost this unlimited source of supply. With, with dams and reservoirs and streams, of course, we know it, we get snow in the winter and we capture it in the mountains and it slowly flows down into reservoirs. We re-regulate when it's released so we can impact reliability and availability from year to year, season to season. But there's these two basic sources of supply. And, and there's, there's two things we need to look at there is, one, many of our dams are 50, 60, 70 years old or older, and it's extremely difficult to build new dams today, with, given the current environmental ethos we have as a country. So we have a real challenge on the source of supply from surface water. Similar with groundwater, there's some challenges is that Rain falls from the skies and just percolates into the ground, and it's available to us. But everything else we dump on the ground percolates in as well, so pollutants and things like that. So our, our groundwater supplies, while plentiful, um, are overly polluted in many parts of the country, uh, which causes a treatment, treatment challenge. As you move down that supply chain of water from just the, the corpus, um, the next thing you have to do is you need to divert it, either divert it out of a river into a treatment plant or pump it from the ground and into treatment plants. If you look at the treatment facilities we have nationally, by and large, the treatment plants are in pretty good shape um, for a number of reasons. One, the, the Clean Water Act coming out of the 60s and 70s drove a whole new set of technologies from primary to secondary to tertiary treatment, and the, the technology and how we design water treatment plants has kept up and there is something about providing a good potable supply to people that um, elected officials and environmentalists uh, as well, delivering a safe water supply is, is always less problematic than creating new supplies of building dams. So our, our treatment plants, by and large, in my view, are in pretty good shape nationally. Of course, there are some that are, that are aging or older, but by and large, our treatment plants are in pretty good shape. As you deliver that water through cities, um, you really start to have a challenge. Again, there's pipelines there. They're 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. They're buried underground. It's not like a roadway where if it starts to wear out and there's a pothole, you get a quick phone call to say, come and fix this. Pipelines are buried, so out of sight, out of mind. And quite frankly, we don't really know what's down there. But as you start to uh, have 
pipe failures and you look at your loss rates, how much is leaking out of pipes to the system, uh, we know that we have a, a considerable R&R uh, rehab and replacement challenge in front of us for all of our distribution systems nationally. Um, once you use it in the homes, it's good, and then it starts coming the other way. Similarly to the distribution pipelines on the potable side, our collection systems um, are, again, buried and out of sight, out of mind. And the real challenge there is, as you start to deliver it to the treatment plants, again, our wastewater plants have kept up with technologies, but the, the biggest challenge from a wastewater standpoint, which drives your reuse um, and how you treat the water to put it back into the system, is some of the exotic contaminants that we're starting to see. You know, 50 years ago, um, all you had to worry about was your sewerage and what, what went down the pipeline. You know, now we're looking at endocrine disruptors, exotic fuels and solvents. As we've gone from uh, separate systems of sewer and storm water into combined systems, we're bringing all kinds of solvents and different kinds of chemicals to the treatment plants. So we're always playing a catch-up game at the wastewater plants see what, what's the next thing we need to treat before we're allowed to reuse it or put it into the system. And then as you just push, push that, that water downstream, um, just the, the challenge that we have of water rights and who owns the water is a big challenge for us. So the, the infrastructure, it, it, it varies in pieces and parts, but I don't think anyone denies that there is literally trillions of dollars of investment necessary for us to maintain that same standard of delivery we've had over the last you know, 30 or 40, 50 years, what we've, what we've become accustomed to. Sure. And that leads right back into the, the access to capital. I mean, where, where are we going to get this capital? What, do you have any thoughts on, on where that capital is going to come from and what, what we need in order to get that investment rolling? I want to take just a little bit of a historical view. If, sure. If you went back to the early 1900s, a little bit before our time, um, <laughs> you would have you would have seen that they always talked about the local power and light company. Much of water and power and how it was delivered in the U.S. was by private companies, and so there was a profit motive. And the, the good thing about a profit motive is that it gives you some certainty of outcome because investors will come, they'll build, build the infrastructure, they know there's a return on that investment, and so it's it's a very clean. Um, way of, of ensuring that you're charging for the good what it costs to produce the good. Um, as we came out of the Depression and you think of the, um, the Works Act and, um, and how we put the country to work, you really saw the change from private entities to, to public good for water. You thought of the Rural Electrification um, Act and much of how water became delivered in the U.S. Um, became the purview of local governments. And so that, that changed, the, changed the dynamic. Now, rather than have a, a business case decision on whether projects should get built or not, we decided as a country that everyone had the right to have access to water, to power, to good sewerage. And so it really became a, a, a subsidized good. If, if you look now at the water you drink in the cities or water that's even delivered to farms, that corpus of the water, the, the value of the water supply is essentially zero. What we pay at a maximum is what it costs to deliver it. 
what is the investment in the infrastructure, what's the cost of that capital, and then what's the O&M and the, um, the, the cost of service to, to, to collect it, divert it, treat it, deliver it. In order to, to drive that kind of subsidy, you would have seen um, just in the municipal market low-cost money available to local governments to build infrastructure. They wanted to minimize the impact on, on the constituents and the users. So that drove the industry in a certain direction where we were just essentially, as I said, paying the, the bare minimum of what it cost to deliver that water, and the water was free. And in an in a up economy, like coming out of World War II, um, can-do spirit, plenty of capital, that, that works. Right? It's, there's, there's always upward mobility, there's always growth, you're supporting the next project, and you're beginning, beginning to subsidize your installed base with new growth. Right? And you mm -hmm. would always hear developers complain about the cost of connection fees, and, and we're, we're always rolling sometimes the cost of the old user base onto the new users. Eventually that runs out, and, and, and that's where we are as a country right now, is there's this deficiency of infrastructure, but there's a deficiency of capital. We, we haven't set aside uh, good reserve accounts, what, what we would in the business world say, look, we know we're going to have to replace that pipeline or that treatment plant at a time certain. So we start putting away a little bit every year so that when it comes time to build that pipeline, we have saved the money. That whole process of building up reserves, that, that became anathema in local governments because it was, it was construed as a tax. You saw elected officials, you know, gazing longingly at these big piles of money in the enterprise fund, and um, they couldn't go in and take it for the general fund. But I don't know a client in the United States, um, in the water wastewater, in the director of utilities I know, where they don't—they're not holding an IOU from the general fund of the city in which they they operate. And so that money has not been left in place and set aside to drive new projects. So you only have these cities. They, they don't have money set aside. They're, they're tapped out a bit on what they can bond, what they can put on their balance sheet. And so they're just trying to make do. And you see cities all over the U.S. just sweating the asset, sweating the asset, seeing can we get by, can we get by, can we get by. So traditionally, this, where a need like that shows up, that's where private capital would step in. And we talk a lot about P3s in the U.S., public-private partnerships, in different forms, design, build, operate, design, build, operate, finance. There's many, many names that we use. But when you look at um, water and, and wastewater, it, it comes back, you have to start all the way at the top of the supply chain, right? It's how is the water made available, groundwater and surface water? Because if you're an investor and you want to invest in infrastructure, and just think about in water, Let's talk about water treatment plants. You have to have some feedstock. That, that feedstock is the water, the raw water that comes, you put through your plant, and then you treat it and you deliver it to someone. You have to have some certainty of the feedstock. And we have a challenge in this country in that uh, water, by and large across the country, is not treated as a property right. It's not just bought and sold you know, across tables. There is a, a whole rights hierarchy, and that presents a real, real challenge is – how do you ensure yourself that you're going to have the raw material to put through your, your plant? Then similarly, as you, as you look at the treatment of water supply, you think about most 
P3 um, partnerships, the ones that are successful, and we've all seen those in toll roads and, and things like that. What, um, there are a couple defining characteristics. Uh, one, we want to have some certainty of the customer base. There has to be some forward sell. And then to do that, we always like to have a monopoly. There's no alternative good. And so as, as we look at water treatment and how we could uh, lure investors in there, they really need to look at if we invest in a plant, what's, what's the certainty that we have a customer to deliver it to? And then what's the certainty that we can control the long-term costs? Not just capital costs, but operational costs. And I think most people know if, uh, if X is the cost of, of the cost of a treatment plant, running that plant over its economic life is typically 3X to 5X. So the total cost of the project, and if you're an investor looking at the return over the life of your, your investment in your asset, being able to control those operational costs is a much better, bigger challenge than just building the plant initially. And that runs us into our next, next real uh, I think challenge is if you look at most of the enterprise functions in our cities and counties today, water and wastewater, the employees that run those plants are unionized, and so you, you quickly run into a challenge when you're dealing with elected officials. It's, it's, it's the source of supply. That's a challenge. Is this water commodity right? The long-term cost of the infrastructure, and then how do you deal with elected officials who are looking at uh, a unionized um, base of employees, and how does that play with all their decision-making? So the business case analysis for investors is extremely complex in there. Mm -hmm. I, you know, Marshall, I think we could talk a long time about all this, but I, okay. I, I want to make sure we get into some of your international experience before okay. we go. Uh, could you talk a little about how, you know, what does the, the Asia-Pacific region look like in terms of water infrastructure, and could you compare and contrast that a little with uh, the U.S. or the North American uh, infrastructure situation? I'm going to break Asia up into a, a couple of pieces. I'm going to okay. say there's... Um, Say China with centralized planning and how they look at things. I'll look at um, Singapore Inc., Korea Inc., China Inc., and how they're doing government-to-government -government transactions for infrastructure. That they're exporting a model to different parts of the world, the Middle East and Africa. Mm -hmm. And then maybe talk uh, about Australia and New Zealand, um, who are a little bit closer in model uh, to the United States. One of the things I find fascinating in Australia is uh, there's two things they've done. One, they, they passed an Australian Water Act where they really addressed that fundamental issue I rose of, of what is the value of the corpus of the water. And they have actually turned water into a property right. So it, it's bought and sold over the counter, and that gives you some certainty of supply. Maybe it's a little bit easier in a country of 22 million people versus a country of 360 million people. <laughs> um, but, but they had to have two or three goes at it to get it, to get it done. But by, um, by putting some certainty around the water supply, that was a, a great driver. On the infrastructure side, you'll see this in both Australia and New Zealand. Um, but let's focus on Australia for a moment. They, um, they have an interesting model for their large... Um, municipal um, service providers like Sydney Water or, or Melbourne Water, they're quasi-public-private entities. So like Sydney, Wa Sydney Water is a 
public, publicly owned corporation owned by the government of New South Wales, the state in which it sits, but they run it like a private company, i.e. they have to return a dividend to the New South Wales government every year. So it's not allowed to run uh, fat and happy. It runs lean and it runs um, just like you would run a business. So they, they have laid this foundation where public-private partnerships are, are an easy e extension. The second thing is, again, maybe it's easier with a country of 22 million people, but they talk about the recycling of capital. And we're going to see, we've seen it in, in rail and roads in Australia, and it's, it's coming to the, to the water business where these government-owned entities, public-private entities, they actually sell off the assets. They privatize it and just hold an auction and sell it to a privatizer. Um, then they take that money that goes into the public coffers and they recycle it. They invest it into the next you know, turn of infrastructure. The privatizers typically, they, they run the asset at a, at a profit. They'll sweat the asset you know, down throughout its economic life. And then in 25 or 30 years when it's, um, they don't want to make the investment in the next, next turn of the crank, they sell that infrastructure back to the government and the process begins, begins anew. The government has sold other assets, they have capital, they put it into rebuilding the new asset, they build the asset back up again, they get all the bugs out, they get it operationally um, perfected, then they'll privatize it again. So they recycle the capital, and the intent there is, you know, on the face of it, you might think, well, that's just a subsidy by um, the taxpayers of private industry. But you, when you look at basic economics, we all know that when you put a dollar into the economy, there's a multiplier effect. So this recycling is actually part of their economic policy, and they look they do that in, in all their infrastructure, whether it's, it's roads, it's um, uh, the water and the waste and things like that. They're, they're always looking to recycle. So there's a whole different model of how they look at investment in infrastructure. There's a similar approach in New Zealand. It's not as extreme, but they do they do recycle. But but the major point there is there's um, there's much more closely aligned interests of the government and private industry to provide a level of service at a reasonable price to the customers. So they start talking about outcomes rather than outputs. You know, here we'll talk about an output. We need a treatment plant or we need a pipeline or we need a dam. In that part of the world, and it's been perfected in, in the UK, they talk about outcomes. We want to provide a certain uh, reliability of service at a certain price with a certain standard of quality and you private industry you figure out how to deliver that outcome how you do it what the outputs are to get to that outcome that's not our business you drive efficiency and effectiveness so you'll see um, a very different approach in Australia and New Zealand if you go to to Asia to China of course centralized planning um, they just decide in five-year increments what's the focus during these next five years, and through centralized planning, the money is just made available, and they just drive to outputs. They need a dam, they build a dam. They need a pipeline, they build a pipeline. They need a treatment plant, they build a treatment plant. It, and it's very fascinating in China at the moment as you know, they've gone through their economic rise over the last you know, 30 or 40 years. They've, they've uh, polluted the country, the water, the air, and now they are 
looking at, okay, how do we start to clean that up? And they're taking a more environmental bent in this next five-year plan that's just being implemented. But they make the money available from the central government. So it, it really is just about planning the sequencing of the infrastructure. Capital is not really a, a challenge in China. If you start looking at how some of the Asian countries are competing into the Middle East and into Africa, again, it's a very it's very different model. They um, it's it's typically government to government, and uh, they're following in, in some ways an old uh, European model or even a U.S. model where they they lead with uh, aid, and that aid is to build infrastructure to improve uh, quality of life, build cities, build agricultural areas, deliver water to mining and oil and gas. Um, the money comes in, they build infrastructure, and then they quickly follow it with a commercial model. So it's again, it's similar that there's a there's an expectation of a return on investment, but the the return on that investment comes from other parts of the economy, not the pure infrastructure itself. So it's um, it, everywhere we go, it's we have the same issues of aging infrastructure, 50, 60, 70 years old, turning the crank. But I think the basic way they approach it uh, is just a little bit different. Hmm. Fascinating um, thoughts on and, and a good comparison and, and contrast with the, the various ways infrastructure finance is, is worked in these countries. Uh, what about the state of infrastructure? It, just from someone who doesn't know a whole lot about, say, uh, infrastructure in in Asia, it, is their infrastructure? Do they have the same age issues as we do in the United States? Or because, just off the top of my head, I would I would think that their infrastructure is probably newer than it is in the U.S. You're, you're right on to it. Let's just talk about China. Um, I don't know when the last time you've been to Shanghai or Hong Kong or Beijing. But they've been building at a dramatic pace there for the last 5, 10, 15 years. And I, I never really noticed how tired our infrastructure here in the U.S. was until I moved to Asia Pacific in 2008 and spent four years in that part of the world. And you see the brand spanking new infrastructure, <laughs> what it looks like. And, um, and I thought, boy, this is kind of neat stuff. And then when I came back to the U.S. in, in 2012, um, I started looking around. I said, it, it really becomes quite obvious for a number of reasons. One, um, in the U.S., you see this amalgam of old technology and new technology where you're changing things on the fly. You're not abandoning your current installed asset base, but you're adding to it. But So you can really contrast old and new technology side by side and just the age of it. And then, uh, as you said, in, in some place like China, it's all just brand spanking new. Mm -hmm. And so it is it's quite obvious. Now you go to other parts of, of Asia Pacific, and um, they have some of the same issues we do. There's, there's a perversion. Uh, we do a lot of work in Fiji, and we've, we've all picked up a bottle of Fiji water at, uh, at the grocery store. But if you go to Fiji and you find out that 50% you know, of the population there doesn't have access to safe drinking water, while we're drinking that water on the other side of the planet, you think to yourself, hmm, that's... There's something, uh, something wrong here with the incentives and, and how capital is being allocated and where water is being sent. But it speaks to that original question we talked about, which is what's the value of the corpus of the water? And uh, you know, someone has figured out that potable water, pure water, is extremely valuable to people. They will drink it. 
the, the irony or the perversion is, but if you try to talk to them about building the infrastructure so they could have that same water delivered right to their home to the tap at a lower price than what they pay for to the grocery store, all of a sudden they're up in arms about this is an unfair tax and, and why are you doing this to me? It, it comes down to that basic valuation of the corpus, the water, and is the, is the water a, a property right? If you get that piece right, um, that allows you know, certainty of investment, the other pieces for delivery of supply. Fascinating stuff, fascinating stuff. One other thing, are you familiar with the uh, Chinese project that where they are diverting water from the south to the north? Yes. Could you talk to us a little about that project? Because it is a massive, massive public work project that the Chinese are undertaking. Sure. It's this old adage, there's, there's no shorter of water on this planet, right? Most of the planet's covered with the oceans. It's, it's a matter of getting the water to where it's needed, whether it's needed for agriculture or for municipalities. So they have, they have the inverse problem in China that we have in California, for those of you who are familiar with California, where 85% of the water sits in the northern part of the state and 85% of the people sit in the southern part of the state. And we did the same thing there in the 50s. We diverted water out of the delta, we put it in massive canals and just ran it to the south and then put it in big pump stations, pumped it over the Hatchapi Mountains and delivered it into the L.A. Basin and into, into San Diego. They have the same issue there, is they have the demand for the water in the north, whether for agricultural purposes or for the major cities, and they've looked at the same thing. Where there's, there's no sources of supply in the north, so they have to, have to move the water there. And as we started out earlier in the, in the chat, tell an engineer we need to to do this, and, and it's a big, audacious problem. Engineers just say, give me enough time, give me enough money, I, I can do anything. And so it is, it is quite a project. There's a number of major tributaries of, of rivers that they are impounding, and then they're pumping those into canals, and they're moving that water to the north, and they're lifting it periodically um, against the gradient and, and pushing it all the way to the north. So it is, it's, a, it's a massive uh, engineering project in its scale, but the engineering principles and what you do, it's quite simple. It's, it's a very simple project. It's just massive. Yeah. Marshall, great answer on the fly. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, Marshall and I did not really discuss getting into that massive Chinese public works project, uh, but Marshall, I thought you did a fantastic job uh, getting, you know, giving us a, a high-level overview of it. Well, we're at the end of our time, and I just wanted to thank you very much, Marshall, for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. You were a fantastic guest. Before you go, could you just tell folks how they can find out more about you or MWH and where they can go to do that? My email is marshall.davert at mwhglobal.com, and I, um, I'm always uh, happy to engage in conversations with, with people uh, to trade ideas, so send me an email. I'll respond want to know a little bit more about our company it's mwhglobal.com so www.mwhglobal.com terrific thanks very much for your time marshall great job thanks david you bet that was my interview with marshall david what a fantastic interview and what a great guy i think it's it's very indicative marshall was going to uh he was going to be taking off uh on international travels shortly after we did the interview and I just think it speaks volumes that an executive of his stature uh, was interested enough in giving back to the water community to come on the podcast. So I just want to thank Marshall for that. Terrific guy. 
Well, there were lots of takeaways in there, the state of our infrastructure being the biggest. I'm sure you're well aware uh, that our infrastructure grades out at, say, a D. Um, there have been many reports about that. But I thought it was interesting to hear in Marshall's opinion that our treatment plants are generally in pretty good shape. It's the distribution and collection systems that are problematic due to their significant age. And because a lot of those systems were undergrounded so long ago, we may not even know where that infrastructure is. The different models for funding infrastructure around the world, uh, I also found really interesting. It's, you know, it just begs the question of which model is going to win out, which, which region is going to export its model to other areas um, to, the, to the greatest success. Uh, most of the models that Marshall discussed existed within uh, the political system of capitalism, which allowed various uh, models to develop and, and tweaks to those models. China was the exception uh, where with their centralized planning, um, or as Marshall called it, outcome-driven planning, uh, was the norm. It's also very interesting to note the role, even in countries with a capitalism political model, how integral the governments of those countries are in promoting capital investment. I think it just highlights that governments are almost a necessary party, not an absolutely necessary party, but but getting close when it comes to the delivery of basic needs and services. Well, you can check the show notes out for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 15. That's pod 15. And please don't be bashful in letting me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993. And finally, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review on iTunes and Stitcher and any other podcast directory on which you download the podcast. That'd be so very helpful in spreading the word about the podcast. And don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast and sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with us. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.